Welcome to the CIO Evolution. In this podcast, we'll explore the Chief Information Officer's role in executing a new ongoing leadership imperative, digital transformation that promotes agility and resilience. How do CIOs upgrade legacy networks? What are the financial challenges CIOs face? And what are the security measures that are required in the new work-from-anywhere mobile and cloud-based world? Welcome to another superlative episode of the CI Evolution. My third episode and the eighth episode is going to be focusing on the hot seat of a CIO, how he or she drives digital disruption across the enterprise. To support me, we have two very, very exciting guests. We have Carl Hoods and we have Christoph Heidler. And uh, over to both the gentlemen to talk a little bit about themselves before we jump into the podcast. Carl, you want to go first? Thank you, Rohit. And uh, hello again, Christoph. Um, so I'm Carl Hoods. I'm the CDIO at the UK government's Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. So there my remit is delivering core services to that department, the Department for International Trade and uh, a number of our partner organisations, such as the UK Space Agency. Uh, and that is full end-to-end service delivery, so desktop services, telephony, as well as digital delivery. I'm also involved in our shared services activities, so ERP platforms across uh, the department and cross-government looking at interoperability. So how do we get government departments' technology to work seamlessly across boundaries? Prior to that, I was at uh, Save the Children for four and a half years in a similar role, looking at uh, how digital and technology could support the humanitarian mission. Christoph. Thanks, uh, Roert and, and Carl. Nice meeting both of you. Um, yeah, my name is Christoph Heidler. I'm uh, now with Zscaler and running what we call the Global Transformation Strategy Team, um, which is consisting of uh, ex-customer that all have implemented Zscaler. I only recently joined uh, in August last year, and prior to that, I've been 25 years on various uh, industry um, roles uh, or IT roles at industry companies, a couple of CIO roles. Last, I've been CIO and also board member of SGS in Switzerland, Geneva, um, where I managed a large transformation project, more than three and a half thousand servers to the cloud, more than 900 applications to the cloud, and so on and so forth. So I've spent most of my life, uh, my entire professional life so far in, uh, in, in IT management roles in large industry companies. So this entire... Uh you know, fourth industrial revolution, as people talk about, uh, part by digital transformation. Just to get your perspectives, how did you see digital maybe about five years back? And what's a trailblazing difference that you're seeing uh, now here in 2022? And if you can share some examples, real life scenarios, that'll be fantastic. Over to you, Carl and Christoph. Thanks. So, I mean, I find it hard to remember what I was doing five minutes ago, let alone five years ago. But I think one thing's for sure is that the pace of change um, and the expectation of change for me has uh, shifted dramatically over the last few years, um, which I think is something that's always been there to some degree. But I think consumerization of technology and availability of data and just the pace at which organizations need to adapt and respond uh, to changing situations has meant that we've had to think quite carefully about you know what bets we make and how do we create that inherent agility inside the organization 
Um, so for us, you know, everyone's talking about the, the pandemic and over the last two years, how we've adapted and changed. And we can, you know, we can point back to examples there around use of video conferencing, et cetera. But it goes further than that. I think, you know, if I look at the pace at which we've been able to deploy solutions for particular examples of whether that's making lateral flow tests available to businesses and how they register for that, you know, launching those services in a matter of days and weeks rather than weeks and months, which was like the kind of the old way of doing things, to the same standard and same quality, I think has, has been an interesting kind of debate uh, that we've been having internally is how do we capture some of these great learnings that we've had over the last couple of years and keep that pace and momentum going whilst making sure that everything is secure, safe, available, etc. which for us is, again, um, I think where we, we look particularly at security and that user experience is like, how do we make that as frictionless as possible, but also make sure that we are as protected as we possibly can be. And we're all dealing with the kind of rise of, of ransomware attacks, cyber threats, ex, you know, et cetera, on a day-to-day basis. And I had a conversation with somebody the other day and just said, look, you know, we talk about digital transformation. We have to include security transformation in that. Otherwise, we're not really transforming. Um, you know, we might be doing the same things in a slightly more digital way, um, but actually there's a big role to play here around embedding that security transformation. And that's something I think that we have to keep a focus on, make sure that we've got that, A, the transformation happens, but then we're approaching it on a continuous improvement mindset. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's my kind of take on that. Maybe, maybe adding to this, I think I, I totally agree to Carl. I think speed, speed of implementation is one of the, uh, the biggest differences. I mean, years ago, you could get a 10-year ERP implementation projects approved. Uh, I think everything exceeding three years now is hard even to find someone to listen to it. But also what I think the, the other thing that I see significantly different is the, the integration of IT with the business and core services. When, when we spoke about transformation, your question was, what is the difference transformation five years ago? And now five years ago, 10 years ago, transformation was, we were so proud we were virtualizing our data centers as an example, right? But the business couldn't care less at the end of the day. We were so proud that we were shifting from frame relay to MPLS or then later maybe to Estevan, reality other than eventually cost the business couldn't care less about, right? Or data center consolidation and so on. And I, th- I think when we now look at transformation, transformation is a lot closer to core business services. And we always ask ourselves, what's the user, either internal or external customer, what's the impact? And are we getting the funding because of change user experience or getting the funding because of different service to the customer, but no longer because it's fancy for IT. And I think that's so much of a difference. And I think that has also changed the role of the CIO, where before I was really, you know, the technology geek for technology people, now I had to learn how do I translate technology language into business language? And how do I, how do I argue a, an IT transformation on how does it increase profitability? How does it increase revenue? How does it help with sustainability and these kind of things that are business language and no longer IT language? And I think that's that's a huge, huge difference. Just, just a reflection of that, I think in some way, I mean, I, t- I totally agree. And I guess from in my mind, I've always tried to approach what I do as a CIO in, in that, that kind of way anyway. Um, I think if I think back to like six years ago at Save the Children, and I remember we were doing some work on blockchain and I was speaking at an event. 
And somebody posed the question and said, well, how do you how do you persuade your CEO that you need to invest in blockchain? I said, I don't persuade them I need to invest in blockchain. I persuade them that he needs to invest in solving a particular problem. It may be that we're using blockchain to solve that, but actually it's a business problem we're trying to solve. So I think maybe for different sectors and different industries and different types of CIO, that that is some, sometimes a larger shift for others to make. Um, you know, we don't talk about, we don't have a data center, right? So we don't have to talk about doing that because everything we do is in the cloud. So I, sometimes I forget that, you know, the last four years we've spent, you know, kind of 100% in the cloud, uh, no infrastructure internally we need to kind of deal with. So, so yeah, I think, but it's an important point that we should always bring this back to what value is the, the IT team adding to the organization? And actually the, the, two, the two are the same, really. It's like that old analogy of, do you need a digital strategy or do you need a business strategy for the digital age? Is that kind of approach. So we've, sometimes I do forget that we kind of, we're well on that path, but I know for other organizations, it is, there's still a bit of a, a disconnect. Um, and I think there was an article I read the other day that said, you know, when you look at security teams, sometimes they're still abstracted away because they need to be kind of held separately to the IT team or to the business team. Again, that's another area for me. There needs to be much more closer integration between the kind of security units, wherever that may sit, and the rest of the organization to make sure what we're doing has the impact it needs to have. Absolutely. And uh, for me, the digital revolution means uh, speed and impatience. And what employees, which are mostly millennials nowadays, <laughs> not <laughs> oldies like us, you know, expect the same experience, uh, if I may say so, in the personal world. Uh, the same experience in the enterprise world. So if you're able to do instant messaging on WhatsApp and 41 million messages go through in a minute globally, and you can download your Netflix uh, in a matter of seconds instead of running on 100 Mbps corporate network, people just can't you know wait for that impatience itself. But you're absolutely right. The balance between technology and business, uh, because sometimes you're called geeks and business really doesn't understand the bits and bytes that we talk in. So jumping on to the next question, you know, how do you see technology really balancing with business? How do you see the CIO office becoming very relevant to the board? And how do you get functions like HR, operations, finance, who may not be that tech savvy, though I've seen very tech savvy CHROs and CFOs nowadays, but how do you get them on your side, both for investments and making strategies successful? Christoph, maybe you want to take a shot at this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny that you asked this question because, I mean, I can, I can talk to it because in, in my last role, as I said, I've been actually five and a half years a CIO uh, of a sizable company with 100,000 people. And the last three years I have been on the board. So it took me two and a half years to get on the board. Now you ask how you get there, right? How you show your impact, how you show your importance, how you show uh, the difference you, you can make. I don't know if there's one way honestly, or if there are multiple ways. In my ways, way, what really worked is I took the infrastructure um, transition to reduce cost. And then I luckily at that time, prior to COVID, I've been allowed to reinvest some of the money that I took out of the infrastructure transformation. And I created an innovation center. And I have also been allowed to create an innovation process and inject um, people into the business units that are IT people coming with an AI background, coming with a background on cognitive services, coming with a background on data management to be part of the business paid by IT to quickly learn what are the requirements, what are the opportunities 
build showcases, build MVPs, and 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 bridge the gap between where's the business demand and what can the technology really realize. So in my case, it <laughs> worked fairly well to bring innovation really into the business, in inserting people into the business and the operations. Now, admitting, you know, I'm talking about a company of a, of a huge size with nine totally different business units in 140 countries. So there's a certain complexity. If you have another company, you may need another measure. If you already have a different connect between IT and business, you also may need a different measure. But I think what is in common is you have to show that you understand the business and you have to show that you can change business processes, improve them, optimize them, or even bring new services. Because in some instances, we were also able to help the business to spot where there's a new business opportunity based on technology. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with that and similar sorts of approaches I've taken in other organizations. For me, it comes back to what we were saying earlier, that the role is, is problem solving. So, you know, there needs to be a, an understanding of problems at a macro level and then, you know, kind of down through the organization and, and figure out how you move from that kind of reactive to proactive measure, which I think is what Christoph's describing in that kind of innovation type approach is like, you know, there's an element of how do you just take the noise away? How do you get the core technology to be a utility? The same as we expect electricity just to kind of be there when we plug something in or turn the tap on and water comes out. You know, how do you get yourself into that that kind of uh, position for the core stuff, which is good on one hand and can have its downside in that nobody notices there's a problem. So it means there's a different dynamic when you come to investment decisions in, in some of that, that kind of work. But in terms of your specific questions around kind of colleagues in your corporate services type world, HR and finance, I mean, I kind of approach those in a similar way. And it's again, it's about collaboration. Um, and it's about understanding what their drivers are and how you can help in that position. I've always had, in, in every organization I've worked in, I've always had a really good working relationship with the HR director. Finance directors can be somewhat um, kind of more problematic because as a CIO, you always want to spend more money. As a CFO, they always want to save more money so um, or create more, depending on where you are. So, so yeah, where, where we are now in Bayes, I think we've got a really good working relationship with both. We're kind of all three of us are, are working together on our ERP replatforming. We've got a specific HR tech work stream, which is looking at uh, how do we embed more automation in the kind of talent attraction, onboarding and offboarding type process. We're looking at alumni type processes. How do we build AI into the recruitment process? So we've got a really good kind of collaborative way of working between the two teams and long may that continue. I have a different experience. I always had stress with HR, not because I'm a bad boy, but I always try to shift the responsibility of identity management to HR. And I always try to add externals, so contractor and so on and so forth, which has always been a better and didn't make me very popular with HR. But I was always of the opinion that it is the HR role to know who's in the company, in which role, until which day. And I try to make them accept that that counts for contractors as well, because of course, as the IT responsible, we are fairly dependent on good identity management, right? To manage access and, and, and what else. And, uh, and I think that I've not always been successful. Actually, I, most of the time I haven't specifically on this contractor piece, but um, that has always been an interesting point of uh, friction, I would say, with the HR department. Yeah, we, we still have those discussions every now and then. I think largely for us, we've got, you know, employees of various forms. If you say we've got contractors, like you say, 
And then we also have kind of consultancies and managed services. So, you know, trying to keep track of those when they can be onboarded and procured in slightly different ways is, is interesting. But yeah, I think we've, um, we've worked quite hard to make that relationship pretty good. And, and to the point of where, you know, we had an HR team embedded in the, the technology team itself. And that was both from a kind of cultural perspective to say, well, what can we do slightly differently in terms of our talent acquisition and attraction? So how do we make a technology team really attractive to the outside world, particularly in the kind of government environment where we're doing really interesting things, but actually the pay differentials are, are quite large to other sectors. So how do we make ourselves more attractive and tell that story, but also from a learning and development point of view as well. And that's as much about getting them to understand that you know, technology training can be more expensive than generalist type training. Uh, we want to access it in different ways. So again, we've we've kind of had some great success at deployment of plural site and access to kind of on-demand learning, which is now starting to see that kind of replicated in other areas of the business. Um, so they're starting to consume and, and adopt training in different ways, which, is, which has been important over the last couple of years where nobody can really go to a classroom. Um, so there's some, some interesting kind of outcomes of, uh, have kind of been born out of that close working relationship. I, I don't know if we're getting off track, but I really want to underline what you said, Carl. I think we are all in these kind of, you know, companies, whether it's now in your role or classical industry companies in terms of it employee branding or employer branding, we're also unfortunately very limited. I mean, I remember in the HR discussions, I said, I want my own LinkedIn page. I want my own. Facebook page because I need to talk about IT in company X. And I always got pushback and said, no, no, we are selling this service and we don't want, you know, destruction from what our core business is. And I said, yeah, but if someone wants to know what is IT in our company, he doesn't have a place to go. He can't find anything about it. How do we want me to attract good talent if we can't talk about what we are doing, right? And uh, and I think that's that's a frustrating part. But on the other side, if we have any candidates on on on, on the podcast today, I think you know, don't think just because you haven't heard anything about the company or its IT that it must be boring. Um, some companies are just so limited, and I work for one, in terms of what they're allowed to give outside, what they want to give outside, uh, how much insight they want to give into the IT activities, which, again, was a bit of a hassle, not only between, you know, IT and HR, it's more the, uh, the, um, the marketing team and the, um, the uh, communication team. But yeah, that's a that's a big hassle. I agree to you, uh, Carl. That's difficult. Yeah, I think it is a really important point for me because you know, there's as CIOs, we often uh, talk a lot about the pipeline of talent coming through, and there's not enough diversity, and there's not enough of certain skill sets, etc. So, what are we doing about that, um, and how does that manifest itself in our branding and our outreach and, and everything else that goes along with it? But importantly, if we're not engaging in those different communities. And getting out there, how how do we start? How are we going to learn what the next generation's expectations are of the workforce and what the implications of that are? You know, if I if I look at my daughter who and my son, they rarely type anything into their phone. You know, it's voice dictation uh, or it's voice memos. So is that going to translate into the workforce? So what does that mean from a data perspective? How are we going to analyze voice records to get sense out of that from a knowledge management perspective or whatever else we want to do with it? So for me, it's kind of like thinking about different audiences and how do we reach into them and how do we then start to kind of capture some of that learning back in so that we can, when we talk about the workplace of the future, we're actually doing it from the perspective of other audiences 
not a bunch of middle-aged guys who think this is the next latest thing that we should be considering because we're not the ones who are going to be around kind of doing it. So um, I think that kind of, you know, awareness and making people aware of things you can do inside of organization and attracting different workforces, different skill sets is incredibly important. In fact, uh, in my experience, I used to push my team that anything and everything that you do in IT should translate into four things. Uh, basically, higher revenue, better profitability for the company. How do you bring in differentiation with the peer group? And how do you drive customer success? So if you're able to translate every action of yours into these four parameters, it's much easier to get on on the right side of uh, the peer group within the company itself. And we re-Christianed ourselves to what we used to call business IT. And we actually had functional people from HR and finance as part of our CIO office. And the moment you made them as the front-end uh, leaders for the functions, things just uh, smoothened out because they were the ones, they were the bridges who could translate technology and business. So I think that worked extremely well. And what we really built was trust. And that itself is going to be our third section of the podcast. Uh, the whole paradigm about uh, cyber risk and security, even though CISOs, chief information security officers, normally don't report to the CIs and their peers. But with 22,000 small to medium to high attacks every day on corporates, with 4,000 large attacks in 2021 alone, with the entire cyber risk and security industry growing handsomely with a base of 350 billion. I think the whole zero trust framework, the whole paradigm about trust in everything that we do is uh, becoming the anchor theme because uh, reputational damage can be much more impactful than perhaps the speed of launch of a digital application that you may have. So just to get your perspective, uh, Christoph and Carl, how do you see the zero trust uh, paradigm evolving? And how do you see CIOs, if I may use the word grappling, with the implementation and uh, evolution of this entire paradigm? Over to you. Yeah, I can, I can start because in, in my role now, I'm, I'm speaking to a lot of CIOs and, and it's like in, in other aspects, the, the level of understanding and the level of adoption or the level of future roadmap setting is, is very different. Most are very far from technology, infrastructure technology and legacy security stacks. And most CIOs obviously come more from an ERP or business side than from an infrastructure side. So for them, it's a first step to say, do I really need to involve myself in understanding what zero trust means? And that's one of the things that I usually do. I bring the zero trust story and this, the fundamentals of the zero trust architecture to the appropriate CIO language and have the dialogue. Why do you as a CIO absolutely need to understand what zero trust means? Because it fundamentally changes how you've done IT security and the technology stack you had in place with what you should have in place and what you should focus on. I think when you ask where are the different adoption layers and what's coming next, it very much depends what's the base, what's your you know, jumping point from where do you start? I think a lot of companies started naturally with looking at the internet egress points, looking at the internet traffic, filtering the internet traffic, went then to endpoint protection, went then to correlating their alerts in SOC centers and so on and so forth. 
then through the cloud transformation where first of the opinion are oh, once it's in the clouds it's probably safe because i have a, a greater technology stack to work through but latest all the the ransomware attacks have shown that if you don't prevent lateral movement even the smallest but then vulnerability that has been utilized can still bring your entire infrastructure applications and network down so i think what's hot now is of course preventing lateral movement um, because we have seen so prominent incidents lately that uh, everyone is quite afraid about these ransomware attacks. And I think one of the other than what has been done already to, of course, protect your, your network uh, and, and also to reduce your uh, risk surface attack. I think the, the thing that is now very hard is prevent lateral movement, because even if you have somewhere an incident, you have to be sure you contain it to the, to the, to the minimum and don't see it uh, really throughout your entire network. Yeah, and I think uh, personally, having helped a group of schools last year recover from a ransomware attack and deal with that, A, I, I think organizations underestimate the sheer chaos that can be caused during such an event. You know, this was 50 schools, 40,000 children, 5,000 members of staff. Um, so really did stop it operating. And that really brought home the kind of point I made earlier on around uh, security transformation, the kind of the old paradigms of castle and moat and assuming that because we know this person's an employee and they've got a login and a pass to the building that they couldn't, you know, they're kind of, that's it, we're safe, it's gone. So I think there's much more attention needs to be paid to. You know, we might be transforming lots of other services across the organisation, but what's the underlying security approach to that? Um, but again, it kind of reiterates the other points we've been made. This is about collaboration. The CIO can't do it on his own. The CISO can't do it on their own. The business aren't going to do it on their own. So it needs the coming together of those, those kind of three factors to say, right, how are we going to approach this and what do we do that's differently? I mean, in terms of where it's going to go in the future, uh, or what I demand to, to Christoph's point, I think it's going to be dependent on your starting point. It's going to be dependent on your sector. It's going to be dependent on... The things that you've um, that you need to to deal with, but you know, for me, we've got more and more devices, uh, more and more services we're consuming, which are further and further away from your own immediate control as a CIO. So, how do you give yourself some assurance that um, that they can be trusted? We've got IoT devices, we've got five G coming. Be a bit more ubiquitous. How are those things going to kind of all work together? What more do we need to do to kind of keep on top of that? ever-expanding landscape that we've got. So uh, everything from governance and understanding kind of where services are um, through to some of the, just the basic principles we need to get, keep getting right. And there's a, there's a point here about user education as well. I think you know, we were discussing earlier about the kind of the consumerization point of technology and people used to using WhatsApp in the home life. There still seems to be a bit of a mental switch when people come into the office, which kind of says, I don't have to worry about X, Y, and Z. It's all taken care for uh, by something else. So how do, we, how do we articulate security risks in a language which is meaningful for individuals? How do we relate that to their kind of home lives and make, you know, kind of make them see that actually when they're doing some security training, it's not just about keeping company data safe. It's also about keeping their own personal data safe. It's about keeping their bank account safe and all those other kind of things. So I think there's something different that we need to do from that kind of training and user awareness perspective, which ultimately for me will help the organization because it's less of a mental or physical barrier to them thinking about it and adopting it when they're in the workplace. 
you know, how many mandatory pieces of training do we all have to do inside of organization, which we kind of do, but then how do we think about that afterwards? We probably don't until we need to. So I think there's just something about making that the norm from a security perspective. Super thoughts, uh, Carl and Christoph, and I can see the watch. We are coming to the end of a fantastic conversation, but always a rapid fire, always, uh, you know, parting notes for our uh, listeners. Uh, very quickly, what do you think are the three basic tenets uh, personally, three characteristics that a CIO should have to be able to keep pace uh, with the expectations, manage the balance and lead from the front a group of millennials? Your quick thoughts. Christoph, you want to go first? Yeah, I think besides that you have to be a genius, right? like we all are, um, I think it's the, the, your ability to prove that you are. And, you know, it's, it's your personality that either helps you or is in your way to explain, integrate with the business, create value. And I think only if you're recognized as a leader, if you're recognized as someone that can really drive change and, change and make impact, then you also grow in your career and you eventually, you know, get on a board or whatever. But I think, you know, it, you have to accept that you have to prove it. You know, you, it's not enough that you are convinced you are and you, you think at one time someone will detect it, how, how great you are and what genius you are. Every single day, you have to take the challenge. I'm proving it to you. I'm showing it to you. I will convince you. And at the end of the day, you will get uh, the credit for the things you are doing. I think uh, you have to be outspoken. You have to be a great leader. You have to be recognized as a great leader. And you have to be recognized for the impact you're having. And I think, you know, I know impact is, is, is for me, one of the, the most important things that you have to prove. It's always the uh, trouble with going second in that most of what you might have said has already been, been covered. But, uh, but to add to that, I think there's, there's something around making the complicated simple in terms of language when you're trying to explain uh, what you want to achieve and how that relates to those business objectives. There's something around being uh, curious and inquisitive because you know, I had a conversation with somebody earlier in the week that says, if you stand still, you're actually going backwards given the pace of change. So we have to kind of be pushing on the boundaries, uh, I think, in terms of how we can exploit technology and, and what that meaningful relationship is with the organization that you're in. And then the rest of it is around collaboration. You have to be a collaborative leader. Um, otherwise, it's not going to work anymore. The days of IT being in the basement, scurrying around, doing what they want and having a ta-da moment uh, as they release it onto the rest of the organization, I think, are, are definitely long gone. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you so much, Christoph. Been an absolute wonderful chat with you. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you, Zscaler. Thank you, CXO Revolutionaries. And hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Christoph. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Cheers. And looking forward to having you on our next session. Thanks for listening to the CIO Evolution. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find more episodes along with other podcasts on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. You should consult your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, 
express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of the recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2021.